The tide is coming in. It is lapping at our feet and soon it will wash us under. We can go with or against this tide, but like time, it will wait for no man. The tide is rising and the waters are warming, changing. In this episode, we are washed with the tides as we chat with artists who are listening to these rising tides and showing us their power and devastation in a world with a warming climate. Hello and welcome to Canvas, FBI Radio's podcast, Unframing Art and Ideas. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands and waters on which this episode has been researched and recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. First, let's chat with Angela Tiatia about the tidal flows of climate change, gender, identity, body and place throughout her practice. Let's dive into her video piece, Holding On, which features the artist lying on a stone pier as the high tide gradually rises, washing over her body one wave at a time. The ocean, man, it's just so much. It just holds so much memory in terms of how my body feels when I'm floating in the ocean, you know, the smell, the taste of the salt water, the food that comes out, you know, the fun that we have playing around in the water. I think the ocean is so vast in its importance. It's infinite in its memories. Like if you think of the ocean and just what it's experienced and seen, but it's also inspired so much out of us as humans. Like think of the courage that it takes to cross the ocean. You know, think Mm. of all the beauty and the love and the wars that have been created and and enacted out over on the ocean. Like, it's just such a magical space. It is. And, you know, all the myths that have come out from the ocean, you know, the parting of the seas with Moses, Jesus walking on water. It's inspired connectivity and disconnectivity. The Sydney art scene and even in New Zealand, it was a very uncool thing to make a work that was on climate change. No one else was doing Mm. it apart from Lathai that I knew. Yeah. And so, um, and so, but I didn't care about that. I just wanted to tell the story. And my philosophy is if only one person sees it and it changes their view, that work is enough. When you were, you know, first changing from sculpture then to digital, did you work then with water and the ocean and looking at the ocean a lot then or did you is that something that's come as you've grown as an artist water in the ocean has always been as part of my work in a weird way but i never really noticed it it's it's never been a conscious decision but because i'm a pacific islander and Mm. i grew up in samoa on on a beach you know that it's always been home for me and do you think that your relationship to the ocean has changed as you've created more works around it or as you've spent more time close to it I don't think my relationship to the ocean has changed over the years but I have seen it change and feel it change actually so being a young child in the water feeling the change in temperature because your body holds a lot of memory 
like for things like temperature. So going into the Pacific Ocean waters, even in December last year, 2019, an extreme difference in temperature for that particular time of day. It just felt like a spa pool and that's alarming, yeah. And then like even knowing, the, uh, uh, even seeing the change in sea life and the way that the coral was bleached, yeah, that's what I've noticed. Your work holding on, mm-hmm. talking about the rising waters and climate change. So holding on was filmed in 2015 in Tuvalu. Even though I'm in Samoa and I was raised in Samoa, um, I chose Tuvalu because of its vulnerability. I just wanted to go and see what um, it was like there first before I decided to make a work. Mm-hmm. And when I arrived there, it was much worse than I had ever imagined. Because I had prepped myself on watching documentaries Mm -hmm. on um, climate change in Tuvalu. There's lots of them on YouTube. Um, There's like a dark tourism vibe that's going on like with um, climate change in the island. I wanted to go see it for myself. The room that I was in overlooked this concrete pier. And I just noticed the tide, you know, changing over the day and then noticed that there was a moment in time at sunset where the tide was just high enough to wash over the pier. And then I just sort of thought, wow, there's such a, that's such a poetic reference just there, just very simple. There's a man-made concrete rock yeah. <laughs> that's sticking out over the water and and then you know there's the ocean that's coming in very slowly and so I was like what would happen if I tried to just lay very just lay my body over that um, concrete rock and just let the camera roll and see if the tide was gentle or whether it was rough I just wanted that visual representation of the human body holding on to a man-made rock with the ocean, which is, to me, what is mirroring our predicament with mm. climate emergency, mm. and especially what is facing the Pacific, o- the Pacific Islands right now, is that they're very vulnerable to the ocean right now. Presenting the work in Australia, what kind of response did you receive? Because I know our government has been pretty crap at um, taking this climate change, especially in the Pacific, seriously, and it's kind of almost poke fun at, at the islands. In the Sydney art scene, and even in New Zealand, it was a very uncool thing to make a work that was on climate change. No one else was doing mm. it apart from Latai yeah. that I knew. But I didn't care about that. I just wanted to tell the story and and I just thought I'll just make the work my philosophy is if only one person sees it and it changes their view that work is enough I really love that quote by Ebeli Hauofa mm-hmm. who is a, a well-loved academic and poet writer of the Pacific and I love what he says as a reminder for all of us that from the Pacific that we are not defined by the smallness of our islands but by the vastness of our oceans. Mm. Like think of what that inspires. It inspires connectivity and thinking as 
a collective rather than as individuals mm -hmm. and what can the collective achieve. My name is Anya Kangiza, and I'm a geographer. I think a lot about water. I never set out to be a geographer, but given that I was born on a boat in the Pacific to white German parents who later moved us onto a small island, there's a kind of poetry to me ending up here, listening to the gurgles and roar of the waves. Geography means earth writing. For me, a geographer is someone who studies the relationships between the land, the ocean, and people. Geography is not a benign thing. It's tied to a violent history because writing the earth, making maps, deciding what a place is, what its name is, and who is there, also means making decisions about who gets left out. Unsurprisingly, geography has played a role in the theft of lands erasing people's histories and lives when they don't fit the story that the people making the maps want to tell. As a geographer, I know how stories about the earth and the sea get made and what they do. In my line of work, there's not a lot of value placed on how I feel or how I live. There's not a lot of care for how scholars are impacted by the stories we hear or that we tell. We are meant to be social scientists, stoic, unshaken. I'm going to tell you a story about submersion. Submersion means being covered over, being fully immersed in liquid. I want to share with you a story that connects the Pacific Ocean to the Tasman Sea to the water that flows through the Yarra River, right here in front of you. I'm telling you this story because, as a geographer, I have learnt about things that I am deeply afraid of. Even though in telling you this I might sound fine, I might sound like everything's okay, it's more complicated than that. Underneath a calm demeanour, I am sick with grief and dread. About a decade ago, I read that South Bank will be underwater in 90 years. At the time, I didn't quite believe it because I couldn't make sense of what that would mean. I couldn't understand how it could be that this land that was lived with and cared for for tens of thousands of years by Indigenous peoples from the Kulin Nations could be underwater, gone, within 100 years. Unceded land stolen twice first by white men in ships seeking to extinguish all that existed, secondly, by the sea, now rapidly rising due to those of us whose ancestors took the world uninvited. The sadness and the rage I felt, it hurt my heart. I felt disgusted by the unfathomable damage and destruction that keeps being done. What made it worse was that I later found out that these predictions were conservative in their estimates. 
What was initially thought to be one metre this century was actually three metres. The Yarra would, in fact, rise about a metre in the next 60 years. I spent the rest of that week trying to figure out what a metre means, and let me tell you, it's not an insignificant amount. One metre is about the width of a doorway or the height of a doorknob, about five steps up a staircase. It's around the depth at the shallow end of a swimming pool, so waist high on a tall adult. At three metres above sea level, the Yarra reclaims most, if not all, of the southern side of the city. So most of the buildings around us will be flooded, and roads within our vicinity here may well be canals. Imagine that. Three metres is a lot of water. To be honest, I think I only understood what three metres really means in April last year when I went to an atoll in the Pacific that is at most three metres high. I went to speak with communities already catastrophically affected by sea level rise on the island of Tarawa, the capital of Kiribati, over 6,000 kilometres away from us here in Nam or Melbourne. It's one of the islands that the news tells us is sinking. It's an island that stocks Australian fruit in its supermarkets, Australian cans on its shelves, in shops where you pay in Australian dollars and cents. Signs advertising Australian aid programs line up along the street built by Australian construction companies. In South Tarawa, over 50,000 Indigenous Ikiribas people live on land that is about half a kilometre wide and 33 kilometres long. Something happened to me there that I want to tell you about, and while you're listening, I'd like you to hold on to the Yarra, because what's happening there will also happen here. What happened changed my life, and it's with me every day. This is what I wrote down at the time. From above, the God's Eye view, the atolls of South Tarawa spread out like hardened tidal patterns, Slopes and pitches of green land running into yellow beach, pale cerulean reefs and deep navy ocean. The white wash of waves frame the fade between water and earth. Dropping down to this land causes vertigo. I'm seized by a sudden fear of drowning. Which surprises me because I grew up on a boat and I learnt to swim at a very young age. The water is my home. Being on a boat, though, is not the same as being on an island. A boat moves with the swell while an island is stuck where it is. Growing up, I spent a lot of time joyfully submerged in the South Pacific, fishing, collecting pippies and seaweed, hiding in mangroves. While those waters are connected to here, I can tell the difference is close to the equator. The light is brighter, the salt is sharper. I am excited to be surrounded by this ocean again, but the vertigo comes precisely from what I most longed for being immersed. Driving along the thin strip of coral, on the right lies the ocean and on the left the lagoon. Only a pile of rocks of a seawall holds back the tide. Deep in my stomach blooms fear because there's not much water between me and the sea. Visions of being taken at night while I'm asleep by an unexpected tidal wave, the seawall breaking apart against the velocity of the current, or of a tsunami warning ringing out and having nowhere to go, 
or of a storm or even a particularly high tide fill my mind. It's not an unfounded fear, these things happen. One afternoon, the moon low to the horizon pulls the water up over the sand and concrete of the road. Three meters above sea level is actually not very high, I realize, when the water starts to rise unhurriedly and my friend and I watch pig pens on the lagoon side get flooded and we don't even know if pigs can swim. Both of us, ocean people, exclaim as the salt water jumps up to meet the car windows as we drive along the road, wondering if the car will be seized by some rogue but gentle swell. On the side of the road, small children splash around and eat ice blocks, while beyond the sandbanks, waves lazily topple over into villages. We watch the water tug at trees, who must be part marine life by now, somehow adapting to the salt infiltrating what soil is left holding down their roots. For hours we watch the tide rise, encroaching up on the shore and flooding everything it came into contact with. What really stuck with me, and why I'm telling you this now, is that what happened that day wasn't exceptional. It was totally normal. The normality of it rattled me right to my soul. The spring tide only got up to 1.7 metres. Other days it can reach over 2 metres. And that was without winds or high seas. Maybe that's why I had a lot of dreams of drowning while I was in Tarawa. Dreams where the water closed in over my head. They weren't nightmares, but those dreams still come to me awake and asleep, and I am haunted by what people like me have done to this world. As I was watching the tide, I was thinking, I'm the one that can leave. I live on higher ground. But it's not true, because I am a part of this. We all are in different ways. Since I've gotten back from Kiribati, I've come to this river, and I've leant on a railing trying to figure out where three metres will come up to. It's hard to turn your back on the water once you know this, but that's the story that I wanted to tell you. Wherever you are and whatever you believe, we're surrounded by the same waters that connect these islands to each other. The ocean, the Pacific, it feeds into the sea that flows into the Yarra. It tethers us together. The same water that rises in Kiribati will also rise here along this riverbank. The sea will come to claim these lands, just as it claims those so many thousands of kilometres away. Our futures are held together in common by this tidal force. First we heard from Angela Tiatia unpacking her video and performance work Holding On and the allegory it presents of the faith required by the people of the Pacific as they confront the monumental challenge of losing their homes due to the impacts of climate change as tides and water temperatures rise and rise. Next, we heard Anya Kangeiser's interactive audio walk, Submersion, as it reflected on sea levels rising, islands submerging and oceans flowing. Anya is an award-winning geographer and sound artist who works through listening to approach relationships between people, places and ecologies. 
Let's go now to a conversation between Latai Tomopiao and Canvas executive producer Anna Mae Kirk as they chat about Latai's recent performance work, The Last Resort, in the 22nd Biennale of Sydney, Niren. I'm speaking from the unceded land of the Gadigal um, people. I have a practice in performance. Um, I consider myself an artist and I make Faivahaka. And Faivahaka in my language, which is from the island nation of Tonga in Oceania, also known as the Pacific, it means a body-centred practice of performance in time and space and it's as a duty or obligation to um, place and environment and so that also encapsulates my training which is was in contemporary dance Um, but my practice sits at the nexus of dance and visual arts um, performance live art as well as ritual or, or maybe ceremony so the last resort, yes, was a work that I presented in Niren um, for the Biennale of Sydney in 2020. It was a performance installation work that was site-specific at Cockatoo Island in Sydney Harbour. It was a live performance um, of uh, two performers, myself and my cousin Daliu, and we crushed... Um, empty bottles of waste bottles that were collected from um, two club spots in Sydney and we crushed glass with brick sandals on our feet and we also used a cultural object called a ike which is a mallet used by women to create ngatu or tapa cloth which is a form of bark cloth that um, is used for ceremonial exchanges as well as being just uh, being the wealth of of women. It was a dystopic island uh, installation, trying to look at how Australians perceive island nations, and that's generally as holiday destinations. And so I was kind of working with that idea that, you know, these, these constructions of resorts are actually homelands of Indigenous people, ask the questions around who is performing the labour around the maintenance of these island homes in the face of climate change and the impact of sea levels rising as well as the temperature shifting in in the the ocean. Not necessarily just looking at the impact, it's also trying to look at the complacency um, of Australian people and how the decisions that they make every day impact other people who have not who have not contributed to to the carbon footprint that is causing all the problems. You know, I feel like this is part of my responsibility as a as an Australian person, but also as a as a person, a Tongan person with ancestry that is um, connected to place and and land. And so I think the the last resort is is a is one of many works that is doing that. It doesn't just talk about the, the rising sea levels. It's looking at the responsibility and the social and human injustice to people who are going to be forced to relocate at some some stage in our 
in our history. Something that's very important to me in making my work is how I place the audience. The performance work is, you know, is nothing without an audience. It really is a relationship between the work and the audience that is the most important thing to me. So for me, I think I like to place the audience in a place where they they have strong imagery that when they hear the words like climate change, they're not fatigued by other things that are going on, but it, that it unlocks an empathy that they may have for people who are already impacted. We are all impacted already now, you know, but it's not necessarily in the same way that people from low-lying islands are experiencing climate change. What I want for them to, to take away from that is that it is a very dangerous um, position to be in when you're facing climate change directly. We know this from, you know, people are experiencing bushfires and droughts and low-lying islands, it's sea levels rising, it's the contamination of fresh water impacting their food gardens. And so for me, what I want is for people to understand how dangerous that is, that we need to have empathy in order to take a whole range of actions that are necessary, not just for people already impacted, but for all of us. And that's what it's going to take. And so for me, it's it's about an audience seeing the vulnerability and the amount of risk that needs to happen in order for us to, to help ourselves. Um, nobody is going to save us from climate change. We have to do the work. We all have to do the work. In Tongan culture, punake is a term used to describe artists who compose poetry and song and choreograph them for performance. We just heard from Latai Tamopiao, a contemporary puake who uses her body-centred performance to tell the stories of her homelands, the island kingdom of Tonga, and her birthplace of the Eora Nation, Sydney. And that's it from us for this episode. You've been listening to Canvas, Unframing Art and Ideas Through the Episode Tides, the third in a three-part cycle of episodes unfolding within the theme of saltwater. You can listen back to past episodes and subscribe for more on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and connect with us via our Instagram at canvas underscore FBI 94.5. Canvas is brought to you by myself, Aisha Ash, researchers Eleanor Zorowski and Jazz Money, audio editor and producer Kanika Kerpolani, digital coordinator Isabella Sanasi and executive producer Anna May Kirk. The textural jingle bookending our episodes is by artist and musician Jackie DeLacy. Thank you to all the artists that have contributed art and ideas to this episode, both in and outside of the podcast. We are releasing lots of supporting info around each episode, including resources, extended interviews, and more, so head to fbiradio.com slash canvas to dive in.